Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Cody McDevitt and Sean Enright, authors of Pittsburgh Drinks, a history of cocktails, nightlife, and bartending tradition. Our guests today are Cody McDevitt and Sean Enright, and they are the authors of this book, Pittsburgh Drinks. Uh, Cody, we'll start with you. Uh, what is it about Pittsburgh that's different than any other city that uh, merits this book? Well, a lot of people don't know that the speakeasy era, the term, the concept, originated in Pittsburgh 125 years ago. It was actually started by a woman speakeasy owner. She told her owners to basically went going back in time there was this law that was passed by pennsylvania lawmakers called brooks high license law so it raised the cost of saloon licenses to about 500 dollars. so instead of paying it people all across the state would operate illicit establishments and not pay any of the dues that were owed to the state so one of According to folklore, and the New York Times talks about this too, there's an article that does it. She told her patrons to speak easy boys. This was up in McKeesport. Her name was Kate Hester. And then the police, they'd have to speak easy so that they wouldn't come in. So then the term spread from McKeesport to Pittsburgh. Then all the reporters at the Pittsburgh newspaper started using it. And then when Prohibition hit, it spread across the country. So, so speakeasies are inherently illegal by definition? Well, the, the, the concept of, uh, as it, when it first started, it was, e it was illegal. Now, post-prohibition, there are speakeasies like the William Penn. They have a speakeasy just in terms of the concept, the bar concept to run with. But, yes, in, inherently, speakeasies are illegal drinking establishments, both during prohibition and before it. You said a, a woman owner were women often owners of bars and yeah uh, they were actually in some accounts that i found in the pittsburgh daily post they were described as the majority bartenders in the city now they say one of the reasons why that was was because the steel mills the coal mines the traditional sources of labor for the traditional breadwinners like the men they would die in those because they're very dangerous occupations. So then the women would be left with children and they'd be forced to find a way to provide for their children. So they would often take bartending, which was illegal, prostitution, other forms of vice, but speakeasy trade and uh, was one of the ones they went into. Uh, Sean, we'll bring you into this. What was your involvement with the book? Uh, so I've been uh, on the Pittsburgh bartending scene for years. Uh, started the Pittsburgh chapter of the Bartenders Guild. I was the first Pittsburgher to do this sort of pre-prohibition craft cocktail speakeasy style uh, bartending here at a place called uh, Embry in the Strip District. So uh, 
through that, uh, sort of mentored a lot of the uh, up-and-coming bartenders and some of the prominent bartenders today. So what I basically did is I, I collected uh, recipes and talked a little bit about technique for the book and incorporated that into the written history that Cody had uh, collected. Mm. His, the last chapter is largely written from his perspective, too. So, from 1996 to 2016, uh, it started with his account, and then I just kind of interviewed everyone else that I felt was important, too. So, that's the final chapter. But if you're looking to talk to somebody about the craft cocktail renaissance that's happened recently, he's probably the person that knows it better than anyone. But you also researched traditional cocktails for this book? Yeah, well, Cody would, uh, we, we had this idea to finish every chapter with a traditional cocktail from that decade. And uh, so Cody would say, all right, I got this, I found this recipe. And, uh, you know, as we got closer to uh, the current era, um, it was easier to find those recipes. But, you know, a lot of them, it was like you'd find an article that would, uh, the one was the fuss fungal where it said uh, whiskey, the article itself said whiskey, molasses, mm. and that was pretty much it. And it was a popular drink that took off across the country, and that, but it, we have no record of it. Um, and that's kind of why we did this book, was to capture one moment in time, capture the history of uh, Pittsburgh, because it's really, it's drinking history itself is sort of, uh, it's not something that reporters were really keeping track of. They weren't, and most, most things that happen in bars Obviously, the uh, patrons were intoxicated, wouldn't really write stuff down. If they did, they couldn't read it the next day. That's the actual the historical record for the newspapers. Surprisingly, because of newspaper databases, you do find accounts of the bar history, which is how we were able to write it before 96. I was basically newspapers.com, you do the keyword search, and then... All the terms speakeasy from, say, 1888 to 1932. Every article that doesn't have speakeasy in it is eliminated from the database. And then you can go through the painstaking process of reading every single article that describes the bar scene. And then you can construct the entire narrative history and put people back in to the bars of the past. Did you each try the cocktails that you came across that some were the yes. traditional yeah, yeah. ones? Yeah, yeah. We, did, we did them all. You know, some were really good. Some are... Uh, some need some work, <laughs> um, but you know, it, one thing we we know from uh, drinking and, and food history is that uh, our palates change mm. through the years. So, you know, something like the fuss fungal, uh, it could be could be considered nowadays a really sweet cocktail. But that's how they they liked it. Um, you know, anisette, uh, any uh, licorice flavored uh, cocktails from early century or 1900s were really popular. Nowadays, people, you know, people don't really aren't really interested in drinking absinthe straight, but, you know, it was the most popular cocktail in uh, late 19th century France. It was, it was the drink of uh, choice. And Did you come across something in your research, a drink that, that has fallen out of fashion and you thought, wow, how did this one ever go away? I think the fuss fungal, like the, the very first cocktail, was yeah. it, it's a pretty good uh, cocktail. You know, it, uh, like I said, it needs a little tweaking to fit the modern palate, um, but... Uh, it's been a hit. Yeah, well, Every, everywhere we've done it. We've done made it, it for, yeah. People oh. love it, yeah. And it's just all it is is a little bit of molasses, a little, uh, what, what I did, uh, I added a burnt sugar instead of just mm. a simple sugar um, to it, and that just that gives it a little bit uh, more... It's a lot like an old-fashioned. Yeah. That's probably the most 
Turkus Mus. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's definitely it's definitely the godson of an old fashioned. Mm -hmm. Well, an old fashioned is something you don't see very often nowadays. Well, that's I mean, my drink of choice. Yeah, it I is. Think, yeah. I think you know, it. Uh, the old fashioned is one of those drinks that sort of got uh, bastardized over the years. Uh, it, it is the original cocktail. The bittered sling was the very first cocktail. It was the first time the the word cocktail saw print was with the uh, bittered sling. And what would happen is generation after generation, people sort of they they fall away from their their parents' cocktail choices and they start drinking what their grandparents drank. So it sort of went through the cyclical thing where we we lost the bittered sling and people uh, forgot the name of it and they'd say, oh, I want that old-fashioned cocktail. They're actually referring to the very first cocktail, the bittered sling. Um, after prohibition, people forgot how to make it as well, and that's when like you started getting fruit and all cherries muddled and pineapple was actually muddled in it originally. Um, and uh, mm. nowadays, though, uh, as people go back and look for those classic recipes, you know, I think you'd be hard-pressed not to find a bar that can't make a traditional old-fashioned for you. Things go in cycles where everyone likes sweet drinks and fruity drinks, and then they like real dry things and then sour oh things. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. it just is a cycle. Yeah. What, what causes it? You know, I'm not sure. I think it's, uh, I think our, as our palates evolve, uh, you know, we go through different cuisines as well, and, you know, I think drinks match those cuisines. and. And I also think it is—it's a generational thing where you—you mm. you know—you don't want to drink your dad's drinks, but you know your your grandfather's drinks. Mm. That's really cool when you think about your grandfather in 1940s Europe. It's also a lot like music, you know. Some absolutely, sometimes music. Yeah. Some stay with you. Some fall out of favor. Sometimes you go back to it. Sometimes you come want new, something new. So fashion, same thing. You yeah. know, like we see you. Mm -hmm. Fashion choices—they come yeah. back. The I think the right now the 80s and the 70s is a is a big, big well, fast choice. Take me back to the days of the speakeasy, and you're in Pittsburgh, and when would it, like the 1910s, 1900s, and you want to find a speakeasy. How would you find it? Where would you find it? And what does it look like? When oh, you, walk you could up just walk. Door? They weren't peepholes. They were, the whole city was just, it was like the whole city was a speakeasy. The cops were in on the corruption. This was before prohibition, because usually people say police corruption started then but they just kind of looked the other way and there was a political rings would operate the speakeasies they would give protection to the speakeasy proprietors to get kickbacks for the money so then the cops wouldn't bother them and then all you'd have to do they could just walk right into the speakeasy no knock no secret code it was just open to the public open. yeah like like a typical bar but and, and you walk in the door what does it look like well, some of the ones that I found, I started the book uh, with a story of this really colorful speakeasy. There was this bartender who had two black eyes because uh, a patron punched her in the face twice, both eyes. So then she was just serving. So it was kind of like uh, North Shore was a little bit like the Wild West. But that was probably my favorite neighborhood to write about in that chapter. It was just because it was kind of, it felt like you were in Tombstone or something, but here in Pittsburgh. What would people drink? I mean, usually it was the fuss fungal, I think. Yeah, I think that was the most. Did they drink straight drinks at all? Yeah, I mean, th that's all. Straight well, whis they whiskey is always was been popular. There was evidence of cocktails, Red Planet. Yeah. Remember that one? Yeah. So well, what was the name of it? It was called the Red Planet. It was in this. It was actually, that was around the Civil War's time. They were drinking cocktails. I mean, a lot of people think that Pittsburgh, sometimes they, they, they call it a beer on a shot town. Like Myron Cope actually was a cocktail writer before he became the terrible towel guy. He wrote about Shady Side Scene and he actually didn't like whenever we were called a beer in a shot town because usually 
Though it now, like a lot of journalists who cover the cocktail scene, say we're a beer in a shot town affectionately. Back in the 50s and the 60s when people say you're a beer in a shot town, they meant it. You're an unsophisticated person who doesn't have any museums, culture that's not worth visiting. It's just the traditional portrayal of Pittsburgh by people from New York. So Myron Cope didn't like that. But part of the book that I've discovered is that Pittsburghers' drinks, tastes, uh, and everything is far more sophisticated than just a bunch of steel mill workers going to the bar and then not, you know, enjoying culture. I mean, we're a very culturally rich city. And I hope, I think that's what yeah. both of us wanted to it accomplish is to yeah. show that we are more sophisticated than we give ourselves credit for. It should be noted, however, that Pittsburgh is the town that created the uh, Boilermaker, mm. the beer in the shot. It's a, you know, the, that's a nationally known drink and it started uh, here in Western Pennsylvania, the steel workers would get out of the, mm -hmm. out of the mills, and they'd want to get a shot and a beer as quickly as possible. They were covered with all this gear, and uh, and they were boilermakers, and so that's where the boilermaker came from is uh, here in Western PA. So I think that's a, yeah. we are a beer and shot town in that we created the boilermaker, but we are not a beer and shot town because we have, we do have uh, some great. Yeah. And our cocktail scene drinks. now is you know world class. I mean. You can come here, you can get some of the best cock. I mean, you go to New York, you go to Tribeca Film Festival, the cocktails you'll get in Chelsea are just as good as you get here. So, you know, I mean, it, we've all, I think we've always been uh, better than we've given ourselves credit for. And currently, I think we're one of the best in the country in terms of that aspect and food as well. Well, getting back to the uh, speakeasy, if you, did they serve food? Well, in the Prohibition era, this is another thing that asked like right after the great depression started the black crash people stopped going to speakeasy so this is a different era in the speakeasy era which continued through prohibition like it started before prohibition continued up through it so after the stock market crash happened they had to bring out ways in which to get people back into the speakeasy so one of the ways they did it was they started offering free food so they'd offer sliced pork, they'd offer crackers, they'd offer, and th this is, I think, a trend that probably happened nationwide, too. Um, so that might be one of your, if you are really a food historian, that might be where food on the bar started at the beginning was actually during the Prohibition era, speakeasy, because they had to attract people back in. I don't know if that's true of other cities. I know it's true of ours, because I found newspaper accounts where... They did that. They had a whole bunch of other ways. They tried to attract business during the Great Depression. Before Prohibition ended, they would send out, what was it? Uh, they would send out people, and then they would just try to. A flyer fl all, all over, yeah. Yeah, they would try to, they'd send bartenders out, and then they would just yell at people to try to get them to come to the speakeasies to drink. Uh, so there was a variety of different ways of attracting customers back. But, yeah, food in bars, at least in Pittsburgh, in my research, started during the depression and prohibition coinciding. Now getting back to when the w our start of our conversation when we were talking about speakeasies uh, and mm -hmm. saloons, what w would have been different about a saloon other than that they were following the they law? Yeah, they paid the fee uh, and they would also, they would complain frequently about the business being taken to uh, the speakeasies because everyone was going to speakeasies, that's where everyone was drinking. Uh, I think more in speakeasies, even in Pittsburgh before Prohibition, because there was a misconception that uh, women and men drank only 
together during Prohibition. They didn't drink before, but that was like saloons. But in speakeasies and predating Prohibition, women and men drank together here long before the conventional national wisdom says it started during Prohibition. Now, nationally, women and men started drinking together probably during Prohibition, but the speakeasy era, as you know, the, the term originated with a woman. And so men and women were drinking, were getting served by women, and so it's a different uh, city history than what, I guess, the national wisdom holds. It's a, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but I, I learned from your book that women were prohibited from being bartenders by Pennsylvania law from 19, was it 1941 to 1967? Yeah. yeah. That's actually one of the th reasons we, we talk about the cocktail seat disappearing. One of the things that I hypothesize is we lost a, a lot of talent and vision with the creation of cocktails because women were banned. I mean, you're, you're literally ba banning half the intellect that goes into creating those type of drinks. And up to that point, women had played a very vital role in the city's beverage and bartending scene. So when they were banned, it, it hurt the profession. So would a saloon have looked any different than a speakeasy? Were the prices any different? Did they serve anything different? I mean, the cocktails were, I mean, the other thing is the, the wholesale distributors, uh, they would probably, in terms of obtaining alcohol, they would have to do it through more um, transparent ways. And then in terms of the drinks, I didn't find anything different, but it, there's a car political cartoon that's in the book. Uh, it, it shows speaking like a saloon operator basically trying to get business. And then it shows a line of people just all going into the speakeasy. So the biggest difference between the speakeasy and the saloon is that everyone went to speakeasies. They didn't go to saloons, even though they were paying the fees, they were paying these exorbitant amounts of money they weren't seeing the customers there. Like, yeah, which also meant they were charging more yeah. for everything across the board, which speakeasy didn't have to do. They weren't paying those fees. They weren't paying those outrageous yeah. fines. So they could charge less, and that would get the crowd in. Yeah. Uh, Sean, uh, let's go back to the 1930s, 1940s. If, say, Humphrey Bogart walked into a, a saloon or a speakeasy, what would he have ordered? Uh, I, I know that in Casablanca he was drinking Lillet. Um, What's that? <laughs> it's a... Uh, French aperitif, uh, sort of like vermouth, kind of like a sweetened vermouth. Um, you know, I, I think he, uh, you know, he was a martini guy. Um, I think uh, in in Pittsburgh, uh, I would like to think he would do a couple of boilermakers and uh, <laughs> and hopefully hmm. a fuss fungal here and there. But uh, yeah. And what would Frank Sinatra drink? Frank Sinatra would definitely be martini. Yeah, absolutely, martini, up or whiskey on the rocks. That's uh, can you talk about the difference between a martini and a vodka martini? Sure, a martini is uh, is gin based. I mean, that's where where it came with with the term martini came from. Uh, vodka martini is as different as an apple martini. It's it's a it's definitely a style. Uh, gin martini, uh, very class. The comes originally from uh, Martinez, which was actually used uh, sweet vermouth and uh, dry vermouth um, and gin. Now a the martini, which it, the history of it is a little bit muddy. Nobody's really sure exactly where it came from. They think it came from the Martinez. Um, that was traditionally uh, dry vermouth, gin, and orange bitters. And that, that was it, stirred, poured up in a Are there purists glass. who think a martini is gin? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, mar the martini, uh, 
I myself, you know, I, I believe a martini. I'm a very, I'm traditionalist, so I like, I like my cocktails made traditionally. I like a martini with gin, stirred, nice and cold, a uh, little bit of orange bitters and uh, that dry vermouth. And uh, you know, over the years, we've sort of, we've sort of changed that. Or as again, our palates change. We cut out the vermouth. Um, for many reasons, one we, d we we didn't really have really good vermouth here in America until the last ten years. Uh, yeah, so now now you know in Europe they had they have a hundred different vermouths in France and Italy. Um, we we started getting that in Pittsburgh, probably in uh, 2008. We started getting it back in here. Um, so you know during that era we sort of cut out the vermouth to the point where it was everybody was asking for dry martinis, which was basically put vermouth in the glass, dump it out. Now we actually, with this good vermouth, we can actually do a uh, two ounce pour of uh, gin to one ounce of uh, the dry vermouth. We also have orange bitters now, which we didn't have for you know a couple decades uh, since Prohibition. Um, we have good or uh, orange bitters. And uh, yeah, I think vodka martinis often, people like, like them uh, either dirty with olive juice or, or uh, shaken, which is uh, you know sort of a bartender. You, you get a lot of arguments from bartenders on whether that's proper or not, but you know it's really all about the customer. The customer wants it really light, frothy, and and shaken. They, they there's this. Uh, you can actually get a colder martini by stirring it, but people just think that because it's shaken, there's those little crystals of ice on top that it's actually colder. It's all really about the customer, though, whatever they like. What do you think of premium vodkas, like vodka that you'll pay $100 a bottle for? Uh, I'd rather spend $100 on whiskey. Mm. <laughs> if, uh, I, you know, vodka to me, it's, uh, it doesn't really lend itself to, uh, to cocktails. Uh, a lot of vodkas are, are designed to be flavorless, uh, and that was the big sell for it in the 60s was flavorless, odorless. You could have a three martini lunch with uh, vodka and then go to work and not, not worry about having alcohol in your breath. Uh, there are some really good vodkas though, really good flavorful vodkas. Boyd and Blair here in uh, Glenshaw makes uh, one of the best vodkas in the country. It's made here? Yeah, made in Glenshaw. Glenshaw Distilleries, uh, pure, pure Pennsylvania distillery. Um, and it's a phenomenal, it's gold medal award winning vodka across the world. And uh, So you can try different vodkas and tell oh yeah, unflavored I mean ones? Yeah, and you know a lot of people, they try to take out the flavor because that's, you know, people Different generations want, uh, they want to taste more sweetness, they want to taste more dryness. So uh, vodka companies will actually fil filter it a number of times to try to take out as much flavor as possible. Now for a cocktail, that doesn't really work. Uh, for cocktails, you know, if, you, if you're drinking a cocktail and you don't like the flavor of booze, you probably shouldn't be drinking a cocktail. That's not what they're there for. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, the, the vodka companies, they often try to uh, cut out the flavor in, in the vodkas, and uh, and I think that that's where it just doesn't really work. So the other flavors, the other components that you're putting into a cocktail just overpower the the actual uh, spirit that you're using. So that's where gin and whiskey, tequila, rum, those are all great mixers for cocktails. There's uh, also two gin bars that are opening in Pittsburgh. Uh, there's one in Dormont. Dorm 
Walmart, yeah. And then Rick DeChance is up in one downtown or specialty gin bars, which if you like gin cocktails, those are the place to go. Yeah, and Spoon and East Liberty, they've they've been doing a great uh, gin program as well. So gin is definitely making a comeback. Um, mm -hmm. And it, you know, ever since this whole cocktail uh, boom started again, gin has just been on the rise. Um, mm. So I think you're s in the cocktail bars, you're seeing a lot less vodka cocktails. Um, but there is still a call for it. People, people was still. It, there was a bar in the book. I think Embury didn't. They didn't even stock. We didn't. Even, we didn't, didn't even carry, carry vodka. vodka. We were yeah. a pro pre-prohibition bar, so in America yeah. you wouldn't find vodka in a bar in America. Uh, pre-prohibition to you know, co the co the cocktail actually started in early 1800s, uh, 1806, and really hit its stride in 1880s. So and a lot of people don't realize that it's that old. Um, so we had no vodka, and uh, we didn't really have vodka in America until uh, the Moscow Mule came out and James Bond came out drinking vodka martinis. That was the big push for uh, mm. vodka, but that was we're talking the 50s and 60s. Was that, that was all this James Bond's drink? Vodka yeah, martinis? yeah. He, he, the Vesper was the, uh, the written in the, in the books. It was the Vesper in the movies. Uh, it sort of became vodka. What's a Vesper? A Vesper is uh, gin and vodka with Lillet, um, and that is shaken, which, as I said earlier, uh, we never shake a, a, a vodka drink uh, or a gin drink, but that was how uh, Ian Fleming wrote it in uh, Casino Royale. That was, uh, he was not a bartender. He just created this drink, and now the Vesper is, is again, it's one <laughs> of those really popular drinks made by a non-bartender uh, for purely fictitious use. And uh, you can actually find that in a lot of cocktail bars nowadays. Lillet is the thing you Lillet, yeah, mentioned at yeah. Humphrey Bogart? Drink? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you mean Ian Fleming invented the Vesper to put in the book and it later became a drink? Yeah, yeah. Now it's a very popular uh, cocktail. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty good drink. It's, uh, I got to admit, like it, they used a different style Lillet. Um, Lillet changes product over the years. So nowadays uh, we have a different type of Lillet, so we usually add a little bit of orange bitters as well to try to emulate that original Lillet style. But Sean, I want to get back to the history a little bit. You, when Prohibition hit, first of all, how, how did it unfold? How did it get passed? And what was the effect in Pittsburgh? Well, the Volstead Act, nationally, Prohibition was a result of actually women's suffrage movement. Temperance movement. Temperance built movement, the, the Christian, Women's Christian Temperance Union pushed for it. Um, Largely before that, there was a heavy amount of alcoholism, and women would be subject to brutality at home who, from their husbands who would come home drunk. There's Ken Burns did a documentary on this. And it's a great documentary of the prohibition if you want to really understand the whole thing nationally. Uh, but they pushed for that to be passed nationally, and then it was, and then it was an alcohol ban on the sale and distribution of alcohol. So in Pittsburgh, they still had the speakeasies. The, the whole, they were still illegal. So we had a whole bar system. The whole thing was already here. The question was, how are the speakeasies going to get alcohol? Like, what was going to be the source? They couldn't do these wholesale legal distributors. They couldn't use the breweries. So who stepped in? Organized crime. And then they were the ones that took over the, like, the political bosses controlled it before. The mob bosses started controlling it uh, during Prohibition. Uh, Steve Mellon for the Post-Gazette did a wonderful series 
on Prohibition. It's called The Dark Years. It was one of the best newspaper series I've ever read. But he basically talks about how organized crime got its start in during Prohibition in Pittsburgh and everywhere else for that matter too. So uh, the speakeasies operated openly during Prohibition? It was pretty much the same system. I mean, well, the cops were still paid off. Uh, there were a little bit more of those little peepholes. There was one, I think, there was a skyscraper bar where someone would have to whisper uh, at the bottom of the elevator. They'd have to whisper into a hole. They'd have to have the secret. Then they would be taken up. And then there was this exotic bar on top of this skyscraper in Pittsburgh where they would just, all these fancy drinks from all over, places with bartenders and all the fancy bigwigs would go there. And there were other bars that are more working class, moonshine. Uh, and then the Hill District, obviously, uh, was that after the Great Migration North in 1916, all the Southern African Americans came up. And so that became an epicenter of culture for Pittsburgh, uh, the Hill District, the Crawford Grill. And that was a little bit later, but it, it started with the influx of African Americans into Pittsburgh and much of the culture that Western Pennsylvania, really that the entire North uh, has now is a result of that great migration coming up from the South uh, during that. I have to ask you about a picture in your book. You have the William Penn Hotel in Pittsburgh had a booming speakeasy during Prohibition. And the it did. hotel is still open and it's yep. pretty swanky. And this pic picture looks pretty swanky. Yeah, and yet this was an illegal Speakeasy well, operation during Prohibition? That actually, the, the funny thing is, I think that's the Hotel President Obama. He stays in the William Penn when he comes to town. He, that's where he, that's his hotel. That's actually where my dad got remarried, too. But yeah, uh, it was, it's always been kind of a society place. Still is. So speakeasies weren't necessarily seedy, dark places? Oh, no, no. Uh, some of the highest class, people in three-piece suits, top hats, they would all go into speakeasies, too. It wasn't like people have this image of the Pittsburgh speakeasy of being these ragtag people that have all the coal dust all over them from coming out of the mines and just going drinking. But now it's um, it's much more intricate than that. People that were lawyers, doctors, everyone would Titans drink. of industry. Yeah, titans <laughs> of industry. How often would there be a raid on a speakeasy? And what, why pick one to have a raid on? They didn't pay. They didn't pay the. They didn't pay off the police. They didn't pay off uh, the political bosses. So usually, I mean, it was just a seedy world. You pay bribes to stay open. So these big, these big glamorous ones, they never yeah. got raided. They, you know, it was all high society. They were paid. They were, they would make sure everybody underneath them. You know, you'd probably find the chief of police there, <laughs> dressed to the nines. Um, the the ones you probably got raided the most were the uh, the legal ones that were weren't paying a license, weren't paying. They were probably the ones who were getting raided more than anything. Did steel workers still have a local bar to go to? I mean, not the high society people, but the ordinary working people? A lot of steel, like, because I also write about Johnstown, and I'm doing a story that's based in the 1920s. A lot of steel workers would go to ethnic clubs, too, uh, to socialize in Pittsburgh and elsewhere across the state. But, yeah, there were speakeasies they would go to as well. I mean, everyone had a speakeasy, and sometimes there were private clubs. That was another thing. You'd pay a membership fee, and then it would just be you. I mean, he owns a club now, too, but, yeah. Was there gambling in the speakeasies? Yeah. Cards. They play cards, uh, table games. 
I have to read you this one. Some speakeasy proprietors would send little girls to stop men in the street who looked thirsty. The girl would ask if they wanted a drink. If the answer was yes, the girl would go into the speakeasy and return with a bottle of whiskey, receiving payment in return. A walking speakeasy. Walking speakeasy. What could be more convenient? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why they don't do it today, but liquor laws prevent it. Love to walk past the butcher in the rye and just have a whiskey cocktail rushed out to me. But I think if you, also, if you look at Southside, uh, where all the where all the steel mills were. You know that Southside was basically designed uh, to be to produce alcohol and spirits mm. uh, since the big turn of the century. Uh, they once you go into the slopes, all the steps on the slopes. If you ever go up there, you'll notice this, the steps that go up into the slopes on the south side. They all end, and there's a bar in the corner. Yeah. And this is what the steel mill workers would do. They'd get out of work. They'd cross Carson Street. They'd hit hit a bar there. They'd start walking home. They'd walk up to the top of the steps. There'd be their other bar. They, you know, they just do this little trek home, hit dotting every bar as they, uh, as they went. The Southside has an interesting Southside story. It, it was a working class steel mill place, and then it was just this economically depressed area until Bob Pasolano opened Mario's in the '80s, and then it's been kind of a point of controversy ever since, just with public urination, all these things that are happening outside the bars, but. It was an economic stimulus to the entire neighborhood, and then other bars began to open up, other tattoo parlors, all, basically everything you see on Carson Street. And then Lava Lounge came, Beehive, and that was the craft cocktail renaissance. So it became uh, from this working class to this kind of bit like yuppie place in the 80s to a bohemian feel in the 90s to now. It's just kind of, uh, I mean, there's more to it than just being a college-age crowd, but you go there on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, it's usually young 20-something, and most of the bohemian crowd has drifted over to Lawrenceville. Yeah, Lawrenceville. Yeah, downtown. And now that's becoming, uh, that's sort of a hot spot for uh, imbibing. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump around a little bit while we have the time. You, you sure. mentioned in here um, somebody who recommended a hangover cure uh, it was called the Morning Glory Feast. It Colorful bartender George Kokonakis. Ah, yes, the one have a picture of him George, there. Yeah. Uh, his hangover cure was a juice of one lemon, the white of an egg, shot of scotch, a teaspoonful of sugar, two dashes of absinthe, and charged water, all shaken well and served in a ten-ounce glass. The drink was copyrighted. Does it work? Yeah, I mean that's that's a very classic death's comeback, uh, or not death's comeback, the corpse survivor. That's a very classic. Uh, cocktail and it the name you know sort of implies that yeah you would wake up in the morning you would feel like hell from the night before and you would take this corpse driver you yeah. know back in the 1800s people were drinking all day they'd wake up in the morning and they'd they'd drink mm -hmm. they'd go to work at lunch they would drink and by the end of the day they'd get off they'd hit their their local pub and drink cocktails as well um, the uh, so the corpse survivor this is sort of a a, a uh, offshoot of the corpse survivor where you use absinthe. Absinthe is a very strong, usually 110 proof, uh, 110 to, I, I actually tasted one last week, it was 160 proof. Um, and uh, that, that means it's 80% alcohol in that. Um, it's, uh, it's meant to, th those drinks, the morning glory feast and the corpse survivor were meant to be taken first thing in the morning to get you on your day. 
wake you up from last <laughs> night's hangover. Did they get you out of your hangover? Uh, I think I think that's why they drank all day. <laughs> you get to midday and it's like you you need another yeah. You mentioned absinthe. Was absinthe, absinthe banned in this country for a long it time? It was. It was banned uh, from early uh, 1900s, right right before prohibition. It got banned, um, and it was just uh, deregulated in uh, 2007, I believe. It came back into America, um, and it was really they. There was a lot of uh, over in Europe was really where it uh, the the. the uh, they started uh, fighting against absinthe. There was a couple reasons. One was um, in Eastern Europe, they were actually putting copper into the absinthe to give it the green color, which obviously was just poisoning people. Uh, also in France, they had the phylloxera virus, which wiped out all the, uh, all the wine in France. Um, and when we, we sent over, Americans sent over uh, American rootstock so that they could fight this uh, Laos, which was called the phylloxera. For the grapevines? For the grapevines. We grafted that on. Uh, they started growing their uh, wine again, and the French government was like, all right, we need to do something, because <laughs> everybody's drinking absinthe. Nobody's drinking wine. We need to do something to sort of bolster that uh, export economy. And so the French government actually started this propaganda campaign with the wine growers of France. And so it was made illegal. They said it was horrible. It, there's so many so many articles and they would have giant posters saying absinthe is, is the devil and the, it's the evil incarnate. Um, so they actually banned it in early uh, 1900s. Just for, just to try to sell more wine? Well, that was, yeah, in France. I mean, in France, it, everybody was drinking, was drinking absinthe and they, the French government knew that they needed to do something to give their uh, economy. A did it, did it cause madness? Was that the, the rap on it? Well, yeah. And that, you know, there was, uh, you know, they a lot of the cases that they had were people who would drink, you know, a bottle of absinthe, which, as I said, it's uh, that can be up to 160 proof. That's yeah, that's gonna that's gonna cause a little madness if you drink a whole bottle. And then also there was the uh, the poisoning, so that was affecting people's uh, brains as well when they're getting uh, the cop the toxic copper in their system. Cody, going back through the history, post World War II, you write about the jazz clubs that mm. became popular. Were they the kind of things like you would see Ricky Ricardo sing at in on the Lucy show and back in the 50s? I mean, that in there, there was the jazz era started in the Hill District and then it continued on through Shadyside with Bill Shiner's encore. But yeah, I mean, you'd get uh, Dizzy Gillespie. You get some major jazz acts. Duke Ellington. Um, I think Frank Sinatra drank in these establishments at least uh, they all yeah they went to the hill district is where they would play well that's what was called black and tan clubs black and tan clubs the crawford grill was really important hurricane club birdies hurricane club these were argue i mean in going through all the bars if i had to say culturally the most important um though you can make a case for those the ones in the hill district being the most culturally significant ones. were they completely integrated I mean, they, you would get some white white people that would go to these clubs, but they were owned and operated, and the music was largely played by African Americans. Um, that was a predominantly African American neighborhood, uh, and that was part of the reason why culturally 
uh, it was such a rich and vibrant experience for people to go there. And so people that couldn't get that experience, say, in the white neighborhoods, they would go to African-American neighborhoods to hear the best music in the city be played. And then that continued in the shady side. The guy that opened the Encore Club, his dad owned a bar in the Hill District. He was actually a white bar owner in the Hill District. And he took a lot of the lessons that he learned there and started a club in Shadyside that became the music club uh, for the 60s generation. Were there nightclubs like the ones Ricky Ricardo would play in on the Lucy show? I mean, there was what, the Bill Greens? Yeah, there was, uh, who was, uh, who was the Cuban bartender who came up? Joe Sal, uh, yeah, yeah. Th there was a Nixon Cafe, Nixon Theater. Um, that was like downtown. Yeah. yeah. Um, people don't realize, uh, you know, the we had this huge Cuban. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, population. Well, not population. Immigrants. We had we had one. Yeah. We, yeah, we had, but we had this one bartender who brought the all the Cuban cocktails up. He was uh, from Havana, so yeah. he brought the daiquiri, all the drinks that came here. Sometimes in when. The cocktail historians from New York or Los Angeles write things. They say it started here and then it went to places like Detroit, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland. But in the, in the at least in the historical component of the daiquiri and Caribbean drinks, they came directly from Cuba to Pittsburgh. From one bartender came up and and was serving him uh, to everybody. And yeah, same time uh, that uh, everybody in Miami and yeah. L.A. were drinking. But we haven't talked about beer much. Where does beer fit into all this? Well, Pittsburgh's a great beer city. Yeah, it, Church it, Brew Works. Yeah. And it used to be. I mean, there used to be some like eighty uh, breweries here in the in the city alone. You can still see if you drive down the Strip District, you can still see those the the signage on these old buildings, mm. brick buildings. Uh, there's there was something like eighty different breweries in the ci in the city limits, and yeah. then out, outside. I mean. Nowadays, we have something Smoke like... and Joe's is a great beer place. Yeah. There's, I mean, they have, what, like 500, 600 beers. Yeah. You see, you, I mean, think yeah. of the population of Pittsburgh. It's a very it's Polish, German. Uh, that, that's, that's a heavy beer-drinking mm. population. So it was always here. It was always prevalent. Um, you know, the it's always been a beer town. Um, what kind of beer would uh, the uh, steelworker have along with his shot? Probably, probably, you know, just uh, Pilsner. Um, I think that, you know, that was pretty much uh, There weren't Pilsner really microbreweries then. Yeah. It was just usually the macro breweries from St. Louis, those type of places. It's probably um, probably a Budweiser. Where's Iron City? <laughs> or Iron City, Iron City yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess there were, yeah, those breweries that were here. I mean, Charlie Deach at uh, City Paper, he did like a five-part history of the breweries in Pittsburgh. Uh, if you if people are interested in watching this, they could just go to pittsburghcitypaper.com and just type that in. He does a whole, like I said, fascinating bit about the history of breweries here. The big one was the Imp and Iron. Have you heard of this? Yeah. No. Imperial uh, Canadian Whiskey and uh, Iron City. So that's the one that, you know, as we're writing this book, I can't tell you how many people are like, you gotta, you got to put the Imp and Iron in there? In the same glass or separate? Yeah, people did it either way. They would they would shoot and then drink, or a lot of people drop it right in. Um, there's no there's no wrong way to drink an imp and iron. I guess. Well, was there a time in Pittsburgh drink history that that cocktails were not popular? That 
in the 70s and 80s, uh, in this when you were asking me to talk about some of the most fascinating people to talk to, Tom Jason, he owned the discotheques, uh, craft cocktails, that fancy drinks weren't really the per I mean, usually it was just people wanted to have a beer or just socialize or just take a shot with a bunch of friends and then go dancing. So in terms of the craft cocktail scene, it wasn't as big as say before that or now as it is now. So that, yeah, that's pretty nation. That's pretty much nationwide. Like we, yeah. the the '70s have uh, really were considered the death of the cocktail. Yeah, what did hippies drink? Well, I mean, in Shadyside, they actually did experiment. They had some of the bohemian tendencies that you see today. They'd want to create interesting drinks. Uh, and usually, hippies were more lounging, listen to music, and do that. But it's just different tastes for different eras. Sometimes, though, I mean, I actually enjoy writing and researching the 70s and 80s because sometimes it feels they're a little less buttoned up. They just like to go have fun. They're not, they're not as, I guess, serious about things. So when talking to Tom Jason, who was this guy, he was a genius when I was talking to him, but he only had an eighth grade education, but he became a multimillionaire just by running a nightclub, Empire in Pittsburgh, all the places that he basically owned most of the Pittsburgh nightclubs from for like 30 years. And he doesn't like to talk to the media, doesn't like to talk to the newspaper. When I called him and I said, Tom, you know, I've gone through 125 years worth of newspapers to tell the history of the city's nightlife, and I know how important you are. And then he's like, okay, I'll sit with you. And then I sat down for him for about an hour and a half, and I just, I, I took out my tape recorder. I was like, he's like, no, I don't do that. So then I put it back, and then I just took out my computer, and he didn't say anything, but he didn't realize that I could type as fast as he can talk. So everything he said, I got verbatim. Uh, so every little colorful quote that he had was the full text and whatever he said and he was his understanding of people was among the most uncanny I've ever seen of uh, any person I've ever talked to lawyers doctors or anyone he was just and he didn't he didn't have the PhD just an eighth grade education former bowling alley pin setter who just understood the trends and the way people wanted to drink so d Cody you're the writer and Sean you're the bartender yeah is that now yeah, it works yeah. out. Um, He's the rapper. I'm the DJ. Yeah. What does it take to make a good bartender? Uh, dedication. I think that's a that's the biggest thing. Uh, willingness to learn. Uh, I'm constantly learning every day. You know, uh, I'll have a technique that I think is the proper way to do it. I'll take a seminar and somebody will say, "Nope, that you know, you're doing it for these these reasons." I think um, just it's like anything else. It's you practice constant uh constantly reading educating myself and uh got to be dedicated to it it's it's not an easy job everybody thinks uh, oh how hard can it be it's it can be pretty hard uh you're putting in long long hours uh, on your feet the whole time uh you're dealing with some pretty stressful situations you have to you have to love this job if you don't love being a bartender you'll never make it there's there's just no way you'll crash and burn um, how much of it is uh, the skill at making the drinks and how much of it is personality? Uh, I'd say it's 100% personality and uh, you know the, the, the skill can be taught, technique can be taught, but if you can't talk to a customer, um, 
that's really what it's all about. It is it is a hospitality position, nothing else. Uh, it's just like being a server or or a hostess um, or even working uh, working behind a counter at uh, get go or wherever you have to ha you have to have hospitality. You have to be able to talk to people. That's how you get good at your job. On a busy day when everyone's crowded around the bar, how do you know who's next in ordering? Uh, you know, sometimes we make that mistake and uh, miss somebody. Uh, it's it's hard. You you just gotta you just gotta keep track. And do people need to get your attention, or do you just know? On a really busy bar, yeah. If it's if it's packed, you know, sometimes you'll get a lot of people waving, but you you, you do try to keep in your head who was here first, and um, you know the not everybody's gonna wave and flash money at you. There's gonna be that person who's just sitting there, who's, uh, just wants a cocktail. You gotta make sure you get them as quickly as you get the person who's flashing money and shouting for you. How many different drinks can you make off the top of your head? Oh God, <laughs> I would say probably close to 500. Do people try to play stump the bartender, come up with a drink? Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, especially now with the whole craft cocktail movement, uh, there's, there's more aficionados out there than there are actual skilled bartenders. <laughs> so we get a lot of kids come in and they're like, I read this book. Uh, do you know how to make this uh, purple people eater? I'm like, I have. Uh, do you know how to make it? No. I'm like, well, then, <laughs> how about I make you this drink instead? Uh, you do get. There's a lot of people. It's uh, people are really interested in in the craft. I think it sort of followed uh, the whole cooking revolution as we started watching TV reality shows about uh, TV chefs and things like that. So it was just natural that the next thing was going to be bartenders who are doing more we call it culinary cocktailing so it's a you know we're we're using fresh ingredients we're we're making syrups and bitters and all you know we're adding a lot of our own personal touch to these cocktails now i think uh it was just sort of natural evolutionary step for people to start following bartenders and and following what we do as a craft do you invent new drinks yourself oh yeah yeah uh constantly what's that process like um you know, it's uh, some of it's hit or miss. Uh, I uh, basically sit down. I have a have an idea for what I want. Um, as I said, I'm a traditionalist, so I usually start off with a with a basic uh, template, um, something like a daiquiri, a martini, uh, a old fashioned or bittered sling, and I try to work from that. Do I want to do what kind of drink am I doing? Am I doing a, a tiki drink where I, I work at the tiki lounge down the south side? And I constantly do menu, recreate menus there. Um, so a lot of that is very tropical. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use coconut. I'm gonna use pineapple. I'm gonna use rum, and I'll just take it from there. I'll do like variant offshoots from uh, an original recipe. Um, at Spork, where I'm a general manager over in Garfield, it's uh, I sit down with the bartenders, and we'll, I'll say, what, what kind of drink do you want to make? They'll sort of tell me they want to use some kind of juice. They want to use cucumber. They want to use uh, nasturtium, and uh, and we'll start at the basic level. All right, what what's the spirit you want to use? Start with there. Then you add a little bit of another ingredient, and we'll just sort of build it from there. Do you have a tasting panel, so or do you trust your own palate? I I trust my own palate a lot. You know, I've made a number of drinks where I've just conceptualized them in my head and made the cocktail. And uh, never even tasted it, and put it on a menu, and it's a hit um, first time out. So, 
that's I'm pretty lucky in, I, and but the, again that's years of doing this um, so I, ha I do have an idea of what works and what doesn't work and I've based that all on templates uh, of classic cocktails and why those work and uh, you know there's there's a lot of very simple formulas that if you follow you're gonna be okay a lot of times I see people adding you know hundred different ingredients to a, make a mediocre drink I'm like back it up and just take it down to three to f my favorite cocktails are three to four ingredient cocktails and they're the classics they're the Sazerac uh, Negroni uh, which actually Negroni week is coming up next week uh, oh. uh, we have a Negroni uh, week yes we have a Negroni week where uh, every bar will make uh, Negronis and they'll donate a certain amount of money to uh, local charity which Pittsburgh is doing a uh, local Rainbow Kitchen Community Services this year. What's a Negroni for people Negroni who don't is a, uh, it's considered a classic cocktail, though it's, it's, uh, it's probably started out around the 1930s, 1940s uh, in Italy. It's uh, gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. And that's it. Equal parts and just stirred on the rocks. Uh, Imbibe Magazine and Campari USA decided to start doing this Negroni week where local every city will do uh, will run its own weekly chapter uh, of selling Negronis and they'll all donate all that money to the local charities what kind of ingredients are are used frequently in cocktails now that you never would have imagined would have found their way into cocktails when you started out uh, you know uh, jalapeno ginger um, and that's not e like that's not even being used in that that's sort of a it's a little bit that's about five or six years old people started using those things I never thought I'd see that we're getting a lot more vegetal stuff people are looking for more herbaceousness uh, charcoal is now uh, being used quite often yeah it filters and also has this <laughs> I don't know how to say, beautiful black color <laughs> I don't know it's it's a uh, it's it's both visually appealing and it uh, just gives you a nice clean drink uh, so charcoal is a big one I'm seeing a lot um, yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of a lot of spirits that we I remember when I started this whole thing, chartreuse would sit on the back shelf and nobody would touch it. The green chartreuse from uh, France, it's a, a spirit that goes back to uh, s s 1600s and uh, nobody used it uh, up until the craft cocktail movement started again. And then you know, as I said, we started using vermouth more. We started using uh, green chartreuse, maraschino liqueur. It's uh, it's been great, and we've actually gotten that stuff in Pennsylvania in the last uh, ten years as well. Which was really the hardest thing is with the control state, we couldn't get a lot of product in. But now Pennsylvania, uh, the LCB has really opened up and brought in a lot more product for us to. What kind of drinks, I either contemporary or through history, do you two absolutely hate? Hmm. That's kind of a tough question because I usually like every drink. Yeah. Um, is there a style you don't like? I didn't like gin for a long time, but uh, Ramos Gin Fizz turned me on to it. That's he can explain what that drink. Yes, yeah. um, you know Ramos Gin Fizz, very very classic uh, uh, mm. Cuban or New Orleans cocktail. It's basically gin, cream, yeah. egg white, uh, orange blossom water. It's delicious. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. You got to shake that for about twenty minutes to get the proper. Proper dilution and foam. Um, for me, it's the I, flavored martinis. I, I just can't stand them. Uh, it's uh, 
Red Bull drinks, I think. Uh, Jaeger bombs. Jaeger bombs. I, yeah. There's just not. Uh, I don't think those two things should be. I don't think you should be mixing a depressant with a high octane accelerant. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you're always you're you're you know as a bartender you got to be really careful with uh, how many of those you give out because uh, people they just will just keep going and and not realize how much they've had to drink. Uh, same thing with flavored martinis. I think there's, um, again, like I said, if you don't like the flavor of booze, you shouldn't be drinking booze. It's, uh, it's if you don't like steak, you don't go out and order a steak. Yeah. I read from your book there's a Bartender of the Year award in Pittsburgh. Well, there, there was for in Pittsburgh News Weekly. Yeah. They still do. I mean, it's kind of now become just almost a form of writing just top bartender lists yeah, city, uh, city paper usually does their top yeah. hundred and what does it take to get to the top of the list a lot of it is uh just these are the bars that journalists drink in and so i mean they go to these and the, the amount of buzz that surrounds a bar opening um it's just it's almost amazing actually to watch because there's so much publicity surrounding the restaurant bar scene so and all the bartenders that work at these restaurants are natural people to profile in any journalistic account that you do for whether it be City Paper, Pittsburgh Magazine, the Post Gazette, Tribune Review. Uh, and they find that when they share these articles online, all the bartenders share them. So they get a huge amount of web traffic just because bartenders are generally popular people. Well, we're just about out of time, but Sean, could you briefly describe um, bar etiquette? For the customer, sure. Uh, don't uh, don't yell at your bartender. <laughs> um, they see you. That that would be the big one. Uh, don't wave money at them. They see you. Uh, you they will you they will serve you. Uh, treat them with respect. Um, obviously, tip them. You gotta understand. Generously. Yeah, tip them generously. Bartenders work uh, uh, for minimum wage and. Or b way below minimum wage. Most bartenders working for two two eighty three an hour, and uh, they make their living off uh, off off your gratuities. If you can't afford to tip your bartender, you probably shouldn't be out drinking. Um, I'd say you know don't don't do drugs on the bar. That's usually frowned upon. <laughs> um, fact you have to say that means you have an interesting career well yeah <laughs> I, there's there's a couple other things i could say but I, i'm going to keep it a little more pc uh i've seen it all um you know just respect Re and respect all the way not even just bartenders respect for your servers respect for the doorman you know he it's his job to card you he's not trying to give you a hard time you're it's it's his job and it's his livelihood um Treat every, and I think that's not etiquette for the world. Treat everybody with respect. Um, well, that's a good note to end on. We've been speaking with Cody McDevitt and Sean Enright. They are the authors of this book, Pittsburgh Drinks, A History of Cocktails, Nightlife, and Bartending Tradition. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.